Hey, this is Bob Kulik, and you're listening to Growing Up Rock Podcast. You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. You're a professional, Bob. I love that. Hey, I can take the Rex, and I don't know about the rest. <laughs> <laughs> so, welcome to another special edition of the Grown Up Rock Podcast. And with us tonight is a very special and unique artist in Bob Kulik. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, guys, how you doing? Thanks so much for having me tonight. We appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us, and we will jump right into this because we got a ton of stuff to cover with your career. You've been a very busy man throughout the course of your life. I've tried to keep it interesting. <laughs> as we will find out as we dig into this stuff. So, Okay, ready for the grilling. Here we go. Yep. Uh, one of the things I want to talk to you about is kind of uh, what was your introduction into rock and hard rock music and things like that? How did you first get into music? Well, it seems like those are two different questions. You know, how did I get into the hard rock aspect of it? Came after, you know, the learning some chords played as folk music. That's what my cousin, who taught me how to play acoustic guitar to start off with, she was into the folk music of the time, Joan Baez and Kingston Trio and that stuff, and knew all of the basic chords enough to show me and get me started. Cut to me and millions of other people seeing the Beatles, which totally changed our lives in a way that was palpable. You know, we grew our hair. Everybody moved into electric guitars. Everybody saw a vision that nobody had seen before. And then later down the road after doing that, you know, I'm not sure who or what band would necessarily be considered the, quote, beginning of hard rock as, you know, we know it now. But it wasn't long before even the Stones and the Yardbirds had their, you know, I'm not sure if you could call them hard rock, but they certainly had their hard rock moments. You know, I, I just followed the natural progression along with a lot of the other people that are of my age and started playing around that time. You know, the Rudy Sarzos and, you know, people like that that I can reference to somebody who I'm a friend with, who, you know, he's on my record. We've done shows together. So, you know, I think this is a common experience of learning how to play and then moving up the ladder, so to speak. So when you were growing up, was there a lot of music around your household? Were your parents musicians? What was around at the time? My dad actually was a musician. You know, he played trumpet and uh, probably a couple of other instruments. Didn't ever really get to hear him play. By the time Bruce and I were around, you know, weren't playing anymore, but definitely lovers of music. And so we had a phonograph and were able to listen to records and all of that, which definitely helped. Can't say my parents were necessarily fans of the Beatles or any of that at first. Like many parents, they felt that it was threatening because it was, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that kind of helped to be able to have a circumstance where there was a phonograph and music was acceptable even if the Rolling Stones may not have been. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think the, the actual only one that I ever recall seeing my dad get upset about, and I know Bruce would remember this, was I, I think Bob Dylan kind of rubbed him the wrong way. He just, 
everybody else, you know, they at least they were singers, you know, and he just felt that Bob Dylan was, I guess, below the bar. <laughs> <laughs> I you can't, know, what is I can't that? say yeah. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it was, it's, you know, as with Lou Reed, somebody that I work with who was, you know, not known as, quote, a singer. Right. But, you know, as Bob Dylan, both of them were incredible artists and in that they were able to deliver lyrics and a character voice that, that certainly was nothing to be embarrassed about. Bob Dylan and, you know, Lou Reed and people like that, you know, even Mick Jagger, you know, not a, an amazing singer in the way John Lennon was or somebody like that. A character voice, you know, proving that that could also work. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But not for my dad. <laughs> yeah, I think those guys were a little bit more poets. Do you remember the first album you bought with your own money? Mm, that's a good question. It probably would have been one of the Beatles records, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. You know, you know, maybe maybe the first one or maybe the gotten bought for me by you, my parents buying it. Uh, it it would been, it might have been one of the Rolling Stones records, but certainly one of those. Right. What made you pick up the guitar versus drums? I mean, you know, if you're watching well, the Beatles, how come you're not Ringo? Well, very simple. You know, um, the way that this got started was, you know, we had a little family get together of my cousins and aunts and uncles and stuff. You know, one of those 20, 30 people events. And my cousin Judy, who I mentioned just before, she played some folk music. And so my mother, Catalie, said to me, you know, why can't you do something like that? <laughs> was never really interested in piano or you know, orchestra stuff as in wanting to be that. But guitar looked cool and sounded great. And it kind of, okay, well, maybe I could try that. And then, you know, I asked my cousin Judy if she could, you know, would you mind showing me a few chords? So that's how that actually happened. Now, if you had to just name, because I'm sure you have a bunch, but if you were to name three guitar influences, guitar heroes of yours. You know, I usually, you know, reference without sliding the people who I felt people would know that I would reference, you know, the, uh, all the guitar players uh, that were the Yo-Cat players of my time, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, George Harrison, and my personal mentor, Dick Wagner, who played with me with Alice Cooper and also played with Lou Reed with Steve Hunter. And those were the guitar players that influenced me the most. So you mentioned Hendrix in there, and I heard an interesting thing, and I want to get clarification from you. I read somewhere where you gave Jimi Hendrix a spare guitar string? A guitar string, yes. Tell us about that. Well, uh, my baby band at the time, the Random Blues Band, a bunch of 15-year-olds, playing in a soda coffee house in Greenwich Village called the Café Wa. We played Saturday and Sunday afternoons only. At night, they had Richard Pryor and Richie Havens and you know a bunch of different artists. So we happened to be there the day that this guy named Jimmy James came down to audition. And of course, that was Jimi Hendrix. And he got up there, and I know my world was never the same after seeing something so far beyond what anybody else was capable of as a player, as a performer, as an entity, as an artist, somebody who just, you could just see it. So he got hired immediately and was inserted into the nighttime slot. So it was uh, Jimmy James and the Blue Flame. That was what he was called at the time, with a band consisting of Randy California from Spirit, 
and a few of the other guys who were some of the better players in the Greenwich Village at the time. We were the last band on on like a Saturday or Sunday. And so we were in the dressing room. He was first band on that evening, busted a string in the dressing room right before he was going to go on, didn't have another string. So I went to my guitar case and I took out a set of strings and I went over and said, Jimmy, here, just take what you need. So, of course, then I got the tell me your name again, Bob. And so he knew my name from that, you know, that I gave him a, an E string or a B string, whatever it was. And, you know, no big deal, but, you know, an introduction. And we chatted a bunch of times. He remembered me enough that when he came back after he had gone to England and released the record and became a star and turned into Jimi Hendrix, I was one of the Greenwich Village connections that he had that was invited up to the Warwick Hotel to hang out with him and, you know, have something to drink and hang out and listen to some music. And, you know, I'm not saying that we were friends, but he was an acquaintance that I was lucky enough to make. And, you know, it was just one of those things that fate kind of led me into his path as it led me to his studio where I recorded a lot of the Kiss stuff and a lot of the other stuff that I did that kind of had the connection for me of that I knew the guy and here I am at the studio that he built and all of that. So yeah, you know, Jimi Hendrix was very important, very special. But also I hope they see that, you know, it was, you know, a chance for a kid to meet somebody who then became a rock god and now just, you know, one of the biggest legends ever. Well, it's a cool story and it's cool to hear, you know, because I mean, it is a bit of rock and roll history. Maybe not that particular incident, but just the overall thing, right? You were there at a time that I can only, you know, as a rock and roll fan, I can only dream about those times because I wasn't around at that point, right? Yeah, there are documentaries about Sunset Strip, my girlfriend and I just watched one the other night, and a lot of that followed the Greenwich Village thing as well. A lot of the same bands, a lot of the same vibe. Right. But you can go online and, you know, the Night Owl Cafe, the Cafe Wa, the 60s, you can see Bleecker Street uh, at that time was the equivalent of Sunset Strip, at the same time, in Los Angeles and Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. So there was such a huge music scene in the village. That's why we were, my band was drawn down there. And, you know, at the same time, you know, around the corner at the cafe, excuse me, at the Night Owl Cafe, was the Love and Spoonful. And James Taylor and my soon-to-be friend Pepe Castro from the Blues Magoos. And so these were all musicians and people who went on to do this that and the other thing you know certainly the love and spoonful was a very you know big band of that decade there that period of time and they came directly out of the village as well as did hendrix yeah we're going to talk about pepe castro here in a few minutes but it was an interesting time to be alive i think so many cool stories and so many cool things coming out of that do you remember the first time you heard the, heard a song on the radio that you co-wrote or you performed on? And how did that make you feel? You know, I'm not necessarily clear on the first one, but I remember the one that was dramatic. And when I worked with Diana Ross, thanks to Gene Simmons' introduction, he was going out with her at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I was uh, hired to play solos on Why Do Fools Fall in Love? and Mirror Mirror, both which were top five singles, AM singles, hits, huge hits. Yeah. Diana was hired to play Johnny Carson's show, and we were asked if we would play with her, a few of the guys that played on the record, drummer Yogi Horton, who's no longer with us, may he rest in peace, an amazing drummer, Randy Brecker, horn player, 
the three of us were flown to L.A. And in the taxi on the way to the Holiday Inn we stayed at before we did the show, we heard Mirror Mirror on the radio. And, you know, the introduction, here's Diana Ross, we were the latest hit, Mirror Mirror. And we all just sat there and looked at each other. What could have been better? Driving to the hotel, listening to ourselves with Diana Ross on the radio, knowing that we were going to play with her in a few hours. It was, you know, it was a validation moment. It was a moment of feeling like you arrived. You know, you're on the radio and you're going to actually go and play that song with her. It was a big moment for me. Yeah. And especially to be with two guys who were well-known studio musicians. You know, these guys were great players. And, you know, I just felt it was something special. So they melded us into the Doc Severinsen Orchestra. And you can go online right after we get off and just Google it. It's right there to be seen. Uh, Johnny Carson, Diana Ross. Very, very cool. Mirror, mirror, why do fools fall in love? It's right there. It's an amazing performance. She was in her prime for that. And to be able to play all of that stuff, you know, with her was was something really fun and unique. That sounds amazing. And it must have been a great feeling, like you said, validation. Do you remember the first paying gig you ever played? Well, you know, we played the Cafe while we got paid, you know, five bucks each or something like that. But you're not talking about that, you know, um, LaBelle, for instance, when I played for LaBelle, that was a work with an English band. And when I lived in England, I collected a weekly salary from that. Yeah. You know, I'm not one of those that wrote down, you know, uh, a date, you know, today I received my first check. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I just, it was just like, okay, but but not a big deal. Yeah. I guess when you're building a life as a professional musician, those are some of the things that I always wondered, you know, how does that all come about? Have those feelings, you know, of validation where they're hearing themselves on the radio or they're making their first real money, you know, as a professional musician, not like you said, not just the playing the bar gig, you know, when you're 16 or something. Right. Because, you know, there, there was ob- obviously a lot of that. That's how I got good. Sure. Was playing in top 40 bands, yeah. which helped to teach me. Uh, growing up rock, but also growing up funk and growing up blues and growing up soul music and whatever was popular that you had to play, you know, this way when I finally got to the point of, so I'm auditioning for LaBelle. So they're showing charts, All right? Well, I was proficient enough to read a chord chart. Chords, a lot of the R&B chords, G over A and major seventh chords. Most of the guys that were auditioning, they didn't know what to play. Right. I knew those chords because I was playing all those R&B songs on my top 40 gigs, where we'd play bars in New Jersey and Long Island and tri-state area where I lived in New York that were five or six sets a night, 40 on, 20 off, five nights a week. So you, in the space of six months, your chops were like, went from one, okay, I can play, to I can play anything now. And that was a great training ground. I think a lot of people miss the boat with that. A lot of guys, they go right to the solos. Oh, I don't need to learn how to play the rhythms and all of this stuff. Yeah, you do. (laughs) You do, because you'll be a better player if you do. Right. Yeah, no doubt. So a lot was made of the performance that you guys did on the Kiss Cruise. Obviously, that's been talked about a lot. But one of the things I was curious about is when you guys were putting together that set list, were there any songs that didn't make the cut that you guys were rehearsing? No, actually, uh, we picked what we wound up doing. Okay. Well, that's cool. Uh, Bruce was able to pick the songs that he felt that he wanted to play from his catalog. 
all of the songs being songs that either one of us recorded on the original recording. So that was the prerequisite for the set, was that they would comprise you know, songs that, that I played uh, on Kiss Records of and Paul's stuff, obviously. And Bruce would comprise you know, material that he had played on when he was in the band. So with people not knowing what to expect, because we were not billed in the conventional sense, because we were not a band. So, you know, we were the brothers who then, by playing with two people who are phenomenal players and singer, Todd Kearns is an amazing, amazing talent. Yeah. Brent Fitz, another amazing player. But more than that, they're fans of the music, fans of the genre, and had fun doing it. This was something that meant almost as much to them as it did to Bruce and I. And that was a great position to be in. So everybody knew the songs cold. And we got up there and, you know, we were lucky. You know, everything sounded great. The wind wasn't blowing the stuff around. It was a calm night. It just turned into an amazing experience. You know, we knew people were going to sing along, but I didn't know people would be crying. I didn't know people would be, you know, having this emotional experience hearing these songs. But, you know, again, Bruce was in the band for 12 years and people that saw him play, to see him play some of those solos again. I get it, of course. Or to see me playing some of the stuff from the Paul Stanley thing that they may have seen me play with Paul in 89 on his solo tour. I could see how somebody could be emotional about that. I know I was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, both Bruce and I, it was, was a, you know, it was a, an amazing, amazing experience. Now, Bob, I don't have a lick of musical talent, but I am blessed with four kids that are amazing, and I got to introduce music to them, so... I've got a 17-year-old son that's playing bass. I've got a 15-year-old daughter that's playing piano and singing. I've got a 14-year-old daughter that's singing. What kind of advice do you have for young musicians today? Like, you know, the music industry has completely changed. Like, how do they get started? Well, started as far as playing, that's easy. Yeah. You know, you do it. You know, that's, you know, there's nothing like doing it. You know, you can talk about stuff, but, you know, you got to dive in the pool you know, what you're passionate about, try to start there with, I want to learn how to play this or that, whatever it is, you know, as far as recommending to anybody that they do this for a living, you know, there's no way to suggest that to somebody until they reach a point where they could qualify to even be in a position to compete. One would have to have multiple talents to do that. So let's say somebody play saxophone they learn how to read music and play and now they're hired by an orchestra say or something like that that happens then they might be more qualified to actually get a job and make it a living same as somebody who might play piano who might then wind up writing and being a writer say of jingles or something like that then yes he would be making a, a living through his music but as far as somebody preconceiving being a artist watch the amy weinhardt movie and you'll see somebody who had the talent. The rest was very difficult to deal with, mm-hmm. you know. And that's, you know, the main reason why somebody's going to be a star at some point. Somebody's going to play an instrument and be exceptional. But, you know, how that works is a matter of fate, you know. I don't think it's a matter of, well, I played 12 hours a day and now I'm really great. You can play 12 hours a day, but if you don't have a feel for it, it's not going to make any difference. It's something that you can't really put your finger on how it exactly works. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Hey, Bob, how did you end up connecting with Meatloaf and ending up playing on the Bad Attitude album and 
how did all that come about? I auditioned for the band, my dear friend Joe Stefko, who I played with. He's the drummer that worked with me with both John Cale and with Meatloaf. He'd gotten hired to do the Meatloaf gig and recommended me. And I recommended my brother and we both got hired and went on to do that gig. We were both let go after that tour was over with. And I wound up rejoining Meatloaf from 83 to 89. And in that period of time, did the bad attitude stuff as well. Oh, that's really cool. Let's talk a little bit about Balance. I haven't heard the third Balance record, but I love the first two. To me, it kind of sounds like a heavier Asia, Bee Gees. I can definitely see why songs like Breaking Away, Fall in Love were hits. Like American Dream, I was thinking it could probably be in a movie soundtrack. Peppy's got a great voice, radio friendly. Seems like you guys were headed for bigger and better. But then just one more album. What happened? Well, what happened was that it was a failure. So there was no reason to continue. We did two records, and the second record, unfortunately, when it came out, was Black Friday. For Sony, 100 people were fired, including our product manager and people that were working on our record. So that record really never had a shot at all. And, you know, we did a TV commercial for Japan and did a single uh, you can find online called Ride the Wave. And then that was it. Then we had uh, an offer to do a reunion record, which we did which you should check out. There's a few really good songs on there from Frontiers. So that's the Equilibrium record. You can find that out there. And then we recently did some shows in Sweden, which were fun to do, which were really nice. People came from all over Europe. And, you know, we've been talking about possibly doing a reunion in New York. So that's the latest. Oh, that's that's great. Now, when you get a chance to, let's say, almost basically be either a studio musician, hired gun, whatever you want to call it, for something like Wasp, let's say, two records that you did lead guitar parts for. Does somebody like Blackie micromanage what you play, or do you have the flexibility to say, okay, I'm here, what do you need, and then you just kind of go with what you feel? Well, you know, I can only supply what I'm playing. Some artists need more input, less input from them, more input from me. And in Blackie's case, it was the opposite. You know, he you know, had some ideas, which I incorporated into what I played. And I would play something and here we go. I love that up to here. Can we change from here on? Sure. So he he was very hands-on as far as I like this. Let's try something else there. And that was a fun experience in a lot of ways. And I thought we came up with some really great stuff. I really like what I played on those. And obviously people keep talking about the Crimson Idol and Still Not Black Enough and Hold On To Your Heart and a few of those other songs I played the solos on. You know, stuff holds up. You know, he's a great singer. It's just unfortunate that me and him couldn't have done more, like have a real band where we could have been like equal members in a band. Yeah. I think that would have been something really special. But he has his thing. He had his thing and he's successful. And uh, I wish him the best of luck. I'm guessing Blackie can't be equal in anything. (laughs) That's what I'm well, guessing. you know, he's an interesting person. Uh, <laughs> it's his record. Uh, but I think you would agree, you know, that uh, what we came up with, you know, was something special. Yeah. Bob, you've done a ton of stuff playing your accomplished guitar player. But I think something that doesn't get talked about a lot is, is you've produced and co-produced a lot of stuff. I know that you've produced and co-produced a ton of tribute records how did all that kind of come about? Well, what about my Grammy, dude? Dude, exactly. I won a Grammy that, for producing, yeah. won a it, Grammy for producing Motorhead's version of Whiplash, 
which was on a Metallica tribute with a whole bunch of other name artists. Exactly. You know, I'd like to know more about that. How did your relationship with, uh, you have a working relationship with uh, Bruce Belay as well, right? Bruce and I produced a lot of that stuff, correct. Yeah. And we had a studio in Los Angeles at the time. Where did you and uh, Bruce first uh, get hooked up? By doing some of those records. We became partners and co-produced them for Triage, which was a production company that was doing these records at the time. Very cool. Something to be proud of. How many people can have something like the Grammy plaque to put up like that? Absolutely. Very cool. That's true. Anything been really crazy that's happened to you on stage before? Like, for instance? You tell me. What's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you on stage before? Craziest thing that ever happened. Well, I'll give you one memory of something that I guess you would consider crazy. Back in the day when my brother played, my brother and I played with uh, Meatloaf, he fell off the stage in Ottawa, Canada and broke his leg. And so they canceled a bunch of gigs, but then he said that he would perform in a wheelchair. And so we went back out there and did a bunch of shows where he actually performed in a wheelchair. And during the big makeout scene with Carla DeVita, the female singer, when they did Paradise by the Dashboard Light, they put her in a wheelchair as well. And so he'd be chasing her down the stage in a wheelchair and then turn around and she'd be chasing him down. And it was, the audience was laughing. We were laughing. You know, it's just like, here we are. We're, we're, we're playing, we're a band. We're playing and the singers are maneuvering around the stage in a wheelchair with one of them, the meatloaf guy with his foot up and a, you know, and a cast, <laughs> you know, that was something unusual. Interesting. Were you ever offered a gig that you turned down that later on you ended up regretting? I guess there must have been. I can't think of one right now. I, you know, into turning down a lot of gigs. If I knew it would be something that I'd feel bad about later by not doing. So no, I, I you know, I, I don't really recall recall that there were certain gigs that I would have liked to have gotten, but not something like where I just felt like God. Kiss asked me to be in the band, and I turned it down. Dude, what did I do? No, that didn't happen. Well, well, so, you so know? I mean, even the thing with Wasp, okay, fair enough. He asked me to join the band. I turned it down. I never felt bad about it, other than on a musical level. Other than it would have been nice to have done on a musical level. But, you know, it wouldn't have been the magic. So I wanted to be a producer, and I felt that that was what I needed more than being in a band backing him up. Well, and so you mentioned that, and on the flip side of that, which is, were there other, other than obviously Kiss, were there gigs that you auditioned for that you didn't end up getting that you wish you had? No, uh, other than, you know, the, the Kiss gig, that yeah. would be the only one. Yeah, okay. Sure, who would say that they wouldn't want that gig? Yeah. But um, Hall & Oates, I didn't get the gig they needed a singer. But Daryl made it clear, you're the best guitar player we saw, you know, I mean, you're the best soloist. Everybody knows you're a great guitar player. We need somebody who sings. It's less important about the soloing for them, you know. So G.E. Smith and people like that were more suited for what that was, even though I would have liked to have played with Hall & Oates. But I couldn't, it wasn't like, gee, you stunk up in the audition and that's why you didn't get the gig. No, (laughs) you know, we love you. We just, we need somebody who sings. I didn't sing well enough. I'm not somebody who could do like, all right, you want me to do a third here? Ugh. I concentrate on playing. I'm not a singer. I can sing unison parts, but that's about it. Right, right. You know, so, but, you know, uh, artists that I would have liked to have worked with, you know, David Bowie, people like that, I would have loved to have worked with, but never had the opportunity. So that's a whole other category. Yeah, right on. But, you know, as a producer, I got to work with a lot of the people that I would have liked to have played with. So that was another fun part of doing the the production part. Yeah, very cool. You got a new record out, Skeletons in the Closet. 
How long did it take you to record the new songs that are on that record? Well, the actual real time in the studio, not very long. Because, you know, when you have pros, when Dee Snyder's singing, or Frankie Benali's playing, or Brent Fitz and Todd Kearns and all those people, Andrew Freeman, all of those people are doing their thing. It doesn't take very long. Nobody's grieving over, well, we'll have to come back tomorrow and try again. It's never that. But because of the studio availability, it took over a year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, who drew the album cover? It's a great drawing. This guy, Matt Whitman, you know, a lot of people, you know, were like, what's that? But I thought, we thought, my girlfriend and I especially, you know, she took the photo on the back and the pictures on the inside. That, you know, having a concept, at least, as opposed to, you know, Bob Kulik and Friends, you know, Jesus, really? You know, this, this to me at least had a, a story to go with it. You know, Skeletons in the Closet, you know, did these five new songs. And then as a retrospective look at some of the stuff I had, added the five songs from... The closet, so to speak, the catalog, the nuggets from the closet, the skeletons in the closet. And there's the concept complete with, you know, an artistic rendition of, you know, something to, to do with that. So, yeah. you know, thanks for spotting that. Yeah, that's cool. So I love the record, but I, I want to talk thanks. about my four favorite songs. I got two on each side, so two new ones and two uh, older ones. And was wondering if you could kind of tell us the story behind these songs. So the first one is Rich Man. Rich Man with Todd Kearns and uh, Vinny Apice and uh, Rudy Sarzo and Doug Katsaris, who co-wrote the song with me. You know, the song is about my feelings for my girlfriend that, you know, you're a rich man because you have that person in your life or because you have music in your life, say. That's what Rich Man's about. You know, you may not have your fancy car and you may not have your, you know, your cruise ticket and your diamond rings but you do have the person or the thing that you uh, adore and that makes you feel like a rich man so I, I really like that sentiment and you know with Todd Kern singing it I think it really sounds you know like something that's modern while still being kick-ass hard rock that's awesome tell us about because I love the vocal melody of player so tell us about player player was more like like uh, an arena rock kind of song and Andrew Freeman who sang that kind of took that approach with it and you know it may be slightly uh, more dated as a song than say London or Rich Man or Not Before You but you know everybody seems to gravitate to that song you know there's something straight ahead about it uh, you know and, and, and the chorus is, is a hooky chorus as well so yeah you know I, I like all the new songs I, I you know I don't feel like you know i gave up and settled as far as songs go i think that they're all quality songs and they go with what's on the back end of the record as well which i thought these were quality songs that should be revisited yeah yeah both steven and i we love uh hard rock melodic hard rock we don't know how we missed on murderer's row i don't know if somehow we missed the marketing but i love that song india that's one of the reasons that uh it's on there because nobody got to hear it really it never really came out in the united states and europe i'm not exactly sure what happened and japan was a limited release so a lot of good music gone to waste yeah that's crazy and then eyes of a stranger in my opinion this would have been all over mtv i have the skull record i remember hearing this song when i first got the record and i'm like man i was so glad you put it on the album that song is one of yeah, my I'm favorites more, on the album. Thank you. You know, a little bit more sophisticated song, you know, 
Yeah. I like both those skull tunes, Guitar Commandos and Eyes of a Stranger. I love them both. Thank you. Guitar Commandos more there for to show the harder side of what that was, and also because my brother played on it. So there we are, you know. Yeah. Okay, so if you're up for it, we love doing lightning rounds. So uh, it's one of those things where say a statement, first thing that pops in your head kind of thing, just to get to know a little bit more about you. You, you up for something like that? I'm up for something like that as long as you give me a second. You know oh, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean I'll try to be stuff. as quick as possible, but yeah, the yeah, yeah. we get, you know, my reflexes are not as quick. You know, I, I got to, <laughs> yeah. when I'm in the batting cage, I got to swing a little sooner. <laughs> no pressure. You know, on the pitch. I, you know what I'm saying? You know, no so, pressure. You know, my reflexes are a little slower. I need a, okay. Okay. Fra- favorite Kiss guitar riff? Hmm. Of a hit that people would know, correct? No. Uh, that, that part Period. doesn't matter. Yeah. Detroit yeah. Rock City. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, How about right. the do, do, best? Do, 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 do. You can't miss that. Yeah, no kidding. Right, right, How okay. about the best concert you've seen? Led Zeppelin, Village Theater, New York. <laughs> First time they ever played. I'll tell you, one of my favorites actually involved you. That was a Paul Stanley solo tour. So Yeah, which show did you see? Uh, I saw the one in San Francisco. I was 20 years old. Oh, man, that was awesome. <laughs> yep, I'll bet. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Fender, Ibanez, or Gibson? Or Gibson. ESP. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that's why they put well, those are the three. If you put ESP in there, I'd have to say ESP. But uh, you know, I've had I had Gibsons, I had Fenders, so either of those works in that trio. Yeah. Uh, how about favorite Bruce Kulick solo? Your brother Bruce. Uh, Tears of Falling is pretty great. Yeah. Uh, Zeppelin or Beatles? Beatles. But, what was but you know uh, only by a percentage. You know. Oh yeah, of course. What was the last album you purchased? My record. Bought it the other day here in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> you asked me, I'm telling you. Nice, there you go. Your records, and I went in there and I, uh, I bought myself a copy. That's good. <laughs> good for you. Uh, that's great. Uh, Randy Rhodes or Eddie Van Halen? Eddie Van Halen. Oh, even though awesome. I did a Randy Rhodes tribute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, great Steve, player. you're up. Song you wish you'd wrote. God gave rock and roll to you. Ah. Just popped in my head. You know, kiss right. motif. So that's what it's go. all about. Strawberry Fields, any of those songs that would be, you know, Dude Looks Like a Lady, anything that would work, anything that made a lot of money. <laughs> you give love a bad name. There's one. That made a lot of money. <laughs> uh, are you a radio guy, a, a streamer, or a product buyer? Which, what do you do? Listen to radio or you, you stream? What do you, how do you get your music? I usually find stuff online that i like listening to either youtube or okay. stuff that i have i have a you know a, a pretty good collection of stuff as well so you know yeah. but uh you know i buy stuff occasionally but you know more often than not you know i don't stream or do any of that stuff no yeah okay favorite song to play live uh, you mean recently or ever just ever that on out okay uh your favorite contribution on a live too Larger than life. It just has the most girth in terms of solo it. Yeah. Cool. Band or artist you want to see live in 2018? Uh, let's see. Lady Gaga is going to be doing a residency. I really want to see her here. Oh, I would like to see that as well. Yeah. All right. Um, name two Desert Island albums for you. Two albums you take to the Desert Island with you. Um, Sergeant Pepper and Fresh Cream. Okay. I can live with those two choices. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you, you survived our lightning round. See, that wasn't that bad. You did great. I don't, I don't know if I could call that lightning round. <laughs> it was the uh, can you come up with any kind of answer in any kind of you know it's, it's, space it's of time. Me- what you'll do is uh, you know this is live, right? It's not live out on the air. It's recorded. Maybe you could have me give the answers first. It'll be like Karnak on Johnny Carson. <laughs> he'd give the answer, then he'd open up the card, read the question. And I thought that was always funny. <laughs> Bob, is there any band out there right now that if you got the call, you drop everything and do a two-month tour with them right now? Foo Fighters. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. If I'd love to play with Dave Grohl. you got to be kidding. Yeah. Dave Grohl, that's that guitar assault he's got going on there. It's, it's amazing. I didn't take any time at all. Good on yeah. you. <laughs> well, they were on Saturday Night Live the other night and saw them. I just thought to myself. You know what? I saw that, got these too. other two guitar players, you know. Yeah. I, could, I could play. I could do that. I could play with him. Oh, That'd absolutely. Be good. That'd be you fun. Could. You know, I, this this way, because he's very musical, but they, they dish it out. And I kind of, you know, we know each other. Not that I would be up for playing with him. He's not thinking about that. But, you know, he's one of the smartest musicians and performers and artists that I've ever met. That guy, he's a class act. Worked with him on that Christmas record with Lemmy and Billy Gibbons. We had a great time. He's a really great guy. And just to see him get up there and dish it out like that, I always feel like, you know what, I, I admire him so much. You know, he's the real deal. You know, there's no, nothing phony. What you see is what you get with Dave Grohl. I can tell you that. He's the real deal. I understand the same thing, the information on him. So what new bands are you listening to these days besides the Foo Fighters? I can't say that there's any one specific band. Uh, My co-producer, the guy that I work with on my record, Bobby Ferrari, and I produced this new artist, Jacob Reese Thornton. Uh, He's a 14-year-old. He's a songwriter, a singer, guitar player. And, you know, to have uh, somebody young that we're working with that, you know, is absorbing all of what we're tossing at him has been very rewarding. And, you know, hopefully you'll be hearing about this kid in 2018. Give us that name again. Jacob Reese Thornton. You can Google him and see. Okay, cool. Very talented kid. So what's next for you, Bob? Well, the uh, Kiss Convention in Atlanta is coming up next month. I'm going to be appearing at that. And the NAM show is also next month be making an appearance at that doing a bunch more interviews today the uh, rock candy magazine site on instagram and twitter they, they just put a bunch of photos of me and uh, links to stuff and explanations of the photos so that's going on right now all day today which is something that's been fun i keep checking in and seeing all the photos i sent them and all the comments from people and all that so it's been pretty cool so that's that's going on today as well so and working on uh, working out a plan for next year and uh, finishing up my book. Very cool. Very so. Growing up, rock podcast will be at the Kiss Expo. We will have a table at the Kiss Expo. We hope that you'll stop by and say hello. I will absolutely. Well, we'll keep in touch before then, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Bob will tie all your information to our website and to our show notes. We appreciate the time that you've spent with us. Is there anything else you want to plug before we, we jump off here and give you back your time? Thanks for having me. I have a, some co-writes on Gene Simmons' The Vault. And that's, as we know, is going to be released shortly. Uh, he actually contacted me the other day. They were finally going to send out some copies. <laughs> so that, that'll, that'll be exciting to get. Yeah, I'm getting one on the 6th. I'm oh, there you go. The okay. Yep. There you go. See, so that's starting to happen. Uh, I actually was able to check it out on the cruise. 
the booklet's really nice. There's a photo of me and Bruce and Eric and Gene on there, which I thought was very cool. So, you know, looking forward to seeing what people have to say about that and proud to be involved with that as well. It's pretty cool. You know, everybody would agree. So uh, that Motorhead record that I produced four songs on, the uh, cover songs, Undercover is the name of the album. That's out now. Somebody can check that out. That has the Grammy award-winning Whiplash that I mentioned earlier that we talked about. And also God Save the Queen, which is another track that I produced on that record. There's that. And of course, there's my record. Go check that out. Skeletons in the Closet. Great record. Thank you so much. Bob, you've been a class act. You've been an awesome dude and you're a complete talent. And we appreciate the time that you've spent with us here today at Grown Up Rock. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. On behalf of me, myself, and I, <laughs> thank, you so, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> no problem. We'll see you in about a month. All right, Steve. You guys take care. Thanks, Bob. All right, thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.